Hey guys, my name is Vikram, and I'm your host for today's White Coat Story. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Margaret Steger, MD, FAAP. Dr. Steger is a professor of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and director of adolescent and young adult medicine in the Department of Pediatrics for the Metro Health Medical System. Dr. Steger received her MD from the State University of New York, SUNY, Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. From there, she completed her residency in pediatrics at the Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Ohio. Following that, she completed her fellowship in adolescent medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. In this podcast, Dr. Steger talks about her journey through the field of medicine, the relationship of revenue and preventative care slash wellness, physician burnout, and more. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Steger. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Vikram. It's my pleasure to be here. So my first question, in simple words, what type of medicine do you practice and what does that type of doctor do? The type of medicine I practice is called adolescent and young adult medicine. I'm trained as a pediatrician, but I have specialty training in the practice of seeing patients between the ages of 12 and 26 years of age. And so I am a primary care doctor for that age group, and I also specialize in certain things and certain conditions that occur during that developmental stage. So uh, what kind of symptoms do your patients complain of when they come to you? The patients that come to the adolescent medicine clinic or an adolescent medicine provider can have a wide variety of presenting symptoms. Most of the time, they're coming for their annual checkup or their annual exam, which means we're doing a routine check-in about how their overall health is doing. Other times, they're coming to see me with a specific problem, such as an illness or a cough or a problem with their asthma. But we can also see patients with even more specific problems, such as concerns around contraception, concerns for sexually transmitted infection, mental health concerns, or concerns around substance use, tobacco use, vaping, or other. Uh, Can you give us, like, what you would do uh, for an average patient? Like, say a random patient walks in, um, can you just walk us through uh, what you would do normally? Certainly. When a patient comes, the first thing we look is at their age. So if they're under the age of 18 and they're coming for their annual exam, they need to present with their parent. Their parent plays an important role in the history and understanding what may be going on with the patient and overall how they're doing. The parent provides important information around school or behavior, sleep, diet, etc. But one most important thing to emphasize here is that a portion of the visit is one-on-one with the physician and the adolescent. And we explain this at the beginning of the visit. We explain that a portion of the visit will be spent with parent and teenager, but then a portion of it will be spent with just the physician and the teenager to talk a little bit more in private about perhaps more personal things, more sensitive things, 
And it's also a time where we'll be doing the physical examination. I explained to the parent that during this time, I will be asking their son or their daughter the questions that we ask of all patients, and that includes questions around their emotional or mental health, their use of tobacco or other products such as marijuana. I'll be asking about their sexual health or their relationships, and I'll also be asking about safety or other concerns. I remind the parent that these conversations are confidential unless there's a concern that presents with the history. So if the teenager says something to me where there seems to be a concern, concern for their well-being, I do explain to the teenager, well, this is important information. We're going to need to share that with your guardian. I want you to be aware of that. And then we share that information all together so that the teenager or the adolescent is part of that conversation. And so this is important for the person that's under the age of 18. So when did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? I was raised in a family where my father was a cardiologist, an adult cardiologist. So I had been exposed to the world of medicine from a very young age. I used to go to the hospital with my father as a very small girl on rounds. He used to have to do rounds on the weekend. And if it was his turn, he he would say, okay, who wants to go do rounds with me? And we would go with him and uh, we were allowed to sit at the nurse's station while he went in and saw the inpatients and spoke with the inpatients. So I got exposed very early to the field of medicine and was intrigued by it. Then through school, I realized I really enjoyed science and I particularly liked biology. I was fascinated by human biology. In college, I furthered my studies in biology and science. And then it was about my second year in college where I realized I'd really like to try to get into medical school and have a career in medicine. So being exposed to a lot of adult patients growing up, what pushed you towards becoming a pediatrician? Mm. Well, that's a different question. So when I decided I'd like to go to medical school, at the time I hadn't determined which field I would like to go into. I just knew I wanted to have that opportunity to become a physician. And it wasn't until later that I made that decision. Much later, it was well into medical school. It was probably my second year, maybe even into my third year of medical school, when you're on clinical rotations, going through various departments and uh, learning about the various fields of medicine. And one of the first things one needs to decide is uh, surgery versus medicine, meaning do I want to be in the operating room and doing surgical procedures or do I want to not be in the operating room and seeing patients in an office-like setting? And that seems to be a big triage point. One, one often knows pretty early on if they enjoy the operating room and doing surgeries versus not. I learned pretty quickly I didn't want to do surgery. That didn't appeal to, much, to me as much. So then it was you know, the field of medicine, and that obviously has a lot of specialties. But pediatrics came up in uh, my third year, my clinical rotations in medical school, and I realized I just, I just loved it. I, I, I thought I knew it was right for me. Is there anything particular that drove you towards pediatrics, or was it just a calling? The interesting part is I actually liked three areas of medicine. I enjoyed OBGYN. I loved internal medicine. And I also loved pediatrics. And so I had a hard time deciding because 
for a long time I thought, well, I think I'm going to do OBGYN. I loved women's health. I found it fascinating to take care of women, especially during pregnancy. But at the same time, I loved the pathophysiology of medicine. I was fascinated by the disease states and how we help people get better. But I couldn't give up the kids. I loved the kids, and I loved the promise of helping young children. And uh, in my third year of college, I got exposed to medical sociology, which was a course at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And during this time, we had a placement. We had a volunteer placement in a medical field to learn more about medical sociology. And I just happened to be placed in an adolescent medicine clinic at the Children's Hospital National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I never knew such a thing existed. I had no idea that there was clinics devoted just to adolescents. And I found it fascinating. I was so curious that one could see adolescents solely. And I soon realized after spending a semester doing volunteer work there that it married all of my interests. It had medicine of internal medicine. It obviously had a degree of children, if you will, youth. And we also did a lot of gynecology. So that served my interest in women's health. And I soon realized pediatrics would be a good match for me with a specialty in adolescent medicine. So going back uh, before you decided on pediatrics, what was your first day of medical school like? Ah, my first day of medical school, it was summer. My memory is that it was August. And a dear friend of mine from high school also got into the same medical school as me. And we were just thrilled. So I had her pick me up. <laughs> I said, swing by, because we were both living at our parents' house at the time, our parents' houses at the time, and our parents lived near each other. So I said, swing by, pick me up. And I insisted that we take a picture that day. I said, we have to. We just have to take, it's the first day of med school. And she rolled her eyes. And I said, no, 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 come on, really, this is important. <laughs> so we took, on my front lawn, we took a picture of our first day of medical school. So I remember it as being very joyful. Were there any, I don't know, any specific parts that were maybe overwhelming or intimidating uh, as you start on this journey, this long, the long journey to, towards being a doctor? There are many. You know, being, being on the journey to being a doctor is uh, just what you said, a marathon. It's a long marathon with a lot of tests, a lot of studying, a lot of dedication, and sacrifice in comparison to one's peers. But what makes it easier is if you love medicine and you love the study of it and the interaction with patients, it all fits together. It all makes sense. And it doesn't feel like sacrifice knowing that you're working towards your goal. So you asked about the first day of medical school. It certainly was joyful, but there also was lists and lists of reading to do and big textbooks to buy and uh, a lot of work to do even on the first day. Now, luckily, our medical school had an orientation period so we did have some games and some picnics and get-togethers and um, some fun activities. But within a two- or three-day period, we had to really settle down and get into our work. And it was, it was quite a bit of work. <laughs> it was, you know, it wasn't college. It was definitely graduate school. And um, 
each class had a lot of reading to do, a lot of work to do, and a lot of studying to do. It, it was a lot. And I soon realized, boy, I could, I could not only study every night, but there's so much work here. I could study every Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night. And I thought, no, I can't do this for four years. I'm going to have to figure this out. So I learned that exercise was important and getting out and, and having some fun and taking a break and meeting my friends and not talking about school or doing something out in nature or going out for a meal and you know, kind of getting away from it. And that would refresh me enough to go back to it. Well, now that you are a doctor, uh, what's an average day like for you? I work in an academic medical center. So I work in a hospital that's a teaching hospital. And so therefore, my days might be different than somebody who's in private practice. I have an outpatient clinic. I'm a division director of adolescent medicine. And um, we have an outpatient clinic for adolescents and young adults. And on the days that the clinic is uh, open, we start our patients at 8 a.m. And we'll see patients to approximately noon. Then there's a lunch hour from noon to one where typically we have a learning conference, a teaching conference of some sort. And then we go back to see patients between the hours of 1 o'clock and approximately 5 to 6 o'clock. While I'm in clinic, I'm teaching residents who are in their advanced levels of training. I'm also teaching medical students while we're seeing patients. So it's a, often a very full day, and um, there's a lot of education that's happening because I'm in, a, in an academic uh, setting. So correct me if I'm wrong, and I very well could be, but um, the residents, they will be getting hands-on experience in the hospital, uh, assisting patients and performing uh, various procedures, correct? That's right. Residents have completed their medical school. They then select their residency. And so the residents that I work with selected their pediatric residency. And there's also a residency called medicine slash pediatrics or med-peds, which is a combination of internal medicine and pediatrics. And that's a four-year residency. General pediatrics is a three-year residency. I have both types of residents with me. And yes, they have direct care. They go in to see the patient. They're in charge of the visit. They function autonomously. And then they need to come to see me with each patient, review the patient with me, also known as precepting. We review the case. We talk about what might be going on, what might tests we might need to do, what education we might be doing or other interventions, and then they execute that. So have you ever had a problem where a patient is perhaps uncomfortable with a resident, um, a resident handling their it, handling their case instead of having a um, a full full physician as their doctor. That happens rarely. If it happens, it's oftentimes because of a gender difference. So it may be someone uh, who prefers to have a female physician, such as myself, or a female physician to do the examination. But it happens rarely. You know, the residents are so well-trained and so competent, and they know, the patients know, and their parents know that I'm there. I'm not leaving. I'm just outside the door in the conference room. Uh, so very, very rarely. Uh, it, usually it's in circumstances whereby I know the patient for many years, 
and they perhaps maybe have a complicated history, a complicated story, and they prefer just not to have to review it with a new person each time they come. They they might say, oh, Dr. Steger, can you just see me so, you know, we can just, you know, talk right away. And so those that might be the exception. But otherwise, most of the time, everyone's fine with it. So having to juggle both students and actual medical cases, you must have a very, very stressful day-to-day life. Uh, how do you decompress after work? It depends on the season. So if it's nice weather and the sun is out, I will often go for a walk after work. I'll put my sneakers in the car, and on the way home I'll stop at a beautiful park. We're very lucky. We have gorgeous parks and walking paths where I live. And I might stop on the way home and just walk while the sun is still out and get some fresh air and take a nature bath, as they say, or I might sit by a stream for a while. Or if it's a particularly beautiful summer day, I might come home, get on my bike, and go for a ride. Um, Or uh, there's other times where I go home and I sit on my deck in my backyard and I decompress. I might listen to some music or just simply listen to the birds. So what happens if it's cold? (laughs) <laughs> Good question. So it's cold now and it's dark now. So I, I leave work when it's fairly, excuse me, I leave for work when it's fairly dark and I get home when it's dark. And I don't particularly enjoy being outside when it's dark um, in nature. So I might, for example, uh, to decompress, I might meet a friend uh, for a cup of tea or I might have someone come over and have a, a meal with me, or we might meet at a restaurant. Um, but I decompress in different ways. Um, I might exercise at home, for example, or I might do an online yoga class at home or go to an, a yoga class at my local uh, gym. Uh, but, you know, there's different ways for different seasons. So for you, do you feel that uh, physical activity is the most rewarding sort of relaxation? It has been over the years. I, you know, when I reflect back on how did I manage stress and how did I, you know, release my brain from the day, because one of the hard things is disconnecting from your day because you're kind of wrapped up in the details of your patients, particularly if they're very sick or they needed to be hospitalized, admitted for some procedure or some evaluation or because they're, they're really not doing very well. It is hard to disconnect from that and uh, switch your gears, if you will, to family life you know, to your spouse, to your children, to your home life. And um, I have found exercise a great way, particularly yoga. Yoga has been very, very helpful for me in sort of slowing down the mind, quieting the mind, uh, being centered, being balanced, uh, and being able to sort of release the stress of the day. Right, right. So eventually you do have to go back to work. And uh, (laughs) what is the most challenging part of that? There are many challenges with work. One is you've already mentioned, which is juggling all the things that are happening at the same time. For example, there may be two or three patients in two or three different rooms. I might have two different residents and a medical student with me. So I'm managing that. There may be phone calls that I'm returning or answering messages from patients while they're seeing the patients or a nurse might be coming to see me about a patient that's over in the urgent care clinic and could I go over and see that patient or help them with that patient. 
that's that's just clinical service but in the meantime as an academic physician I'm also juggling things like uh, work on regional or national committees or writing a paper with someone I may have a research project and the resident wants to speak to me about that so there are often several other things going on outside of clinic that warrant my attention as well so if there was one thing that you could change about how medicine is practiced in your field uh, what would it be in adolescent medicine we spend a lot of time talking with our patients getting to know them having them feel comfortable with us having them trust us to listen to them and answer their questions and that time isn't particularly well reimbursed by insurance companies or by Medicaid from the government and so therefore there's not as much um, uh, revenue generated per se in that important work of talking with a patient or educating a patient or helping them make a decision about something very important to their health so if I could change one thing I would change that reimbursement because I would like to see American medicine based more on prevention of problems and intervention rather than waiting so much later and paying for the diabetes that has expressed itself or the obesity that is now a problem or the depression or anxiety that's very severe I would like to see um, more more revenue being able to be generated for our type of practice so uh, when I have asked this question in past episodes as I'm sure you've heard many physicians have said that uh, physician burnout is a very large issue and you yourself seem to be very good at staving this off with a lot of physical activity as you said but uh, what do you think are some systemic changes that could be used to prevent burnout physician burnout is very real there's several research studies in various fields of medicine that have shown over and over again fairly high levels of physician burnout uh, for everyone so whether you're a man or a woman single married with children without children academic medicine or private practice it, it, it is, exists across the board I think one of the things that's very important to preventing physician burnout burnout on a larger scale is time time being the most important commodity in medicine and allowing physicians to have more time with their patients a lot of physicians feel very pressured whether it's through their practice or through uh, their administrators see more keep seeing more hurry up you know you need to be faster and that's very stressful that can really really burn someone out as well as make them feel that unfulfilled with regard to having enough time with the patient so I would say allowing physicians to have more time with their patients having reasonable start times reasonable end times so that physicians can also have dinner with their family can also have weekends with their family whomever their family might be and allowing for um, breathing room if you will to do charting so charting has become uh, quite an onerous task now that we're using an electronic medical record 
There's a lot more boxes to check, to check and things to complete uh, in order to have a satisfactory uh, documentation of a visit. It's much more complex now. And so there needs to be more time for that. And that process in and of itself needs to be simplified. You know, when I think back to when I first started, I wrote a note in the chart on paper with pen. I had one piece of paper for billing. I checked a few boxes. That was it. I handed it to the front desk and all the billing and everything was managed from there. Now we know that was an imperfect system. We know that. I'm not saying that's the answer. But it needs to be, the current system needs to be simplified. Um, and then, of course, we have larger issues with insurance companies not paying for medicines, needing prior authorizations for certain medicines or certain procedures. That really frustrates physicians as well. How would you like to see electronic medical records simplified? Electronic medical records right now are, are fairly complex, and they require a lot, as I said, a lot of uh, various screens and boxes and clicks and checks and so forth. Uh, I, I don't have a solution for that other than there needs to be a way to make it easier for the physician to complete their note, to write the diagnosis and the orders without so many clicks and checks and messages and so forth. It's, it's fairly complicated now. Um, so I think somehow we need to simplify it. I don't I don't have an answer for that, but um, it's, it's, too, it's too many screens. It's too much clicking. Uh, and you know, keep in mind, remember, we used to write prescriptions with a little piece of paper. We jot it down, rip off the piece of paper, and hand it to the patient. That was it. It took maybe 30 seconds. Okay? Now to write a prescription, it's several screens, and if you don't get it exactly right, the computer will keep telling you to fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. And uh, it can be pretty darn annoying, especially if it's a medicine that's not approved on their particular insurance. And so you get stuck. You know what I mean? You get stuck on these, on these um, screens trying to get this completed. Now, I know that this has served us well in the sense that having electronic prescriptions <clears throat> allows for a very good database with regard to keeping track of everything. There's no doubt about that. But this is what I mean about somehow it's got to be simplified. It's, um, it's, a, it's too, like I said, too many boxes to click. So now that we've uh, looked at the present and a little bit at your past, I want to delve back into your past and uh, ask here how you believe your upbringing contributed to where you are today. Well, I think first and foremost, my father was a physician and my mother was a nurse. And so there was constant talk about health care and health and patients and what does it mean to be a doctor. And as you heard me say earlier, I was exposed to it both at the hospital and in my father's private practice as um, a profession. And all their friends were physicians and surgeons as well. So I got exposed to it there. But I think the other piece was that my parents were very supportive of whatever my choice was. I was very, very fortunate in that I was uh, raised in a very loving family whose parents supported whatever endeavor I was interested in. And there were several, but um, including you know, academic and non-academic. I was very fortunate to be able to go to college 
and then accepted into medical school. There were several things that came into play, but I would have to say it was the support of my parents. For example, when I got into medical school, it was in my hometown. And um, I said to my parents, you know, well, could I live here? Because I was thinking it would help me save money. Uh, It was, you know, close to some friends. Um, I really appreciate their support. And they said, yes, of course. You know, and they fixed up an extra bedroom for me. And so when I finished college, I actually moved back home for two years of medical school. And um, I appreciated that. So it was all that support, not just financial support, but, you know, the actual support of being a student and the challenges and knowing that my parents were behind me 100%. So did you have any role models or childhood heroes aside from your parents who really uh, maybe influenced you to become a physician? I can't name one in particular. I was particularly interested in women who became physicians because women were denied the privilege of becoming physicians for so many years and they had to work extra hard to become physicians. And so when I was in medical school, there were women physicians as attendings, but there weren't that many. So the few that I met, I was so curious about how did you do it? How did you get here? And I remember one was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. She was very confident and very competent in her work. And um, I was drawn to her because I thought, how did she make it? How did she get here? How did she get to be not only so good at her job, but also the lead of her department? And um, I found that fascinating as well because there really weren't that many uh, in in my era, it certainly has blossomed since then where now medical school classes are over 50% women. But that wasn't the case in my father's generation. My father's generation was probably about 8%. And then my class was probably 40%, maybe at most. And now we have over 50%. So we're, we're getting there. Um, but women, obviously still need positions of leadership. They're still behind in positions of leadership, such as deans of medical school and department heads. Yeah, of course. So as a high school student, uh, what skills should I develop to be successful in your field? As a high school student, I think it's important to remember that this is a long journey and to enjoy it. That it's not all about science or chemistry, or physics, or biology, but it's about expanding your horizons and enjoying the full, the full breadth of learning. So whether it's you like the arts, or you really like to be in the theater production that year, or you love playing the trombone, or you take taekwondo on the weekends, it's about developing oneself as a whole person and not limiting oneself to one particular field of science or the goal of getting into med school. This is a young person's chance to really blossom. And I encourage everyone, go for it. Learn as much as you can about yourself. Explore sports or the arts or music or any other field that you enjoy. And I encourage that through college as well, that it's so important to meet and do, meet people and do things beyond your normal upbringing or your normal experiences to allow you to develop 
into a whole person, a well-rounded person. That's going to make you a better physician. Wow. Yeah, that's really great advice. So now that we've taken a look at the past and the present, I want to take a quick peek into the future and ask you where uh, you think you see the medical industry or even your own field in 10 years. Medicine is rapidly evolving. We're, we're watching it in real time. The advent of the introduction of the electronic medical record has certainly expedited that growth. And here in the United States, we are also in this new territory of having expanded insurance coverage through the government, through the Affordable Care Act. But will we get to government-funded insurance for everyone or universal health care for everyone? That's an unknown. Certainly other westernized industrial countries have such insurance, such plans, such coverage for all of their citizens. I would like to see us get there as well. There's a lot of people here in the United States who don't have adequate health care because they simply can't afford it, whether it's their medication their vaccinations, their um, general health care, their mental health care, their dental care, their hearing aids, or their glasses, all basic things. I would like to be able to see that universal health care in the United States becomes the standard. So, final question. What is something that you would recommend to children aspiring to be doctors? I recommend, if you're interested in being a physician to spend time with a physician, to actually meet physicians and not just talk with them, but ask permission, you know, may I observe you? May I spend an afternoon with you? Um, could I come to your office? Or would it be possible for me to stand in the galley and watch a surgery or come to a rehab session and watch some physical medicine or physical therapy? I would encourage everyone to get as much exposure as, a po as possible, whether it's through observing or volunteer work is another great way, whether one volunteers in an emergency room or one volunteers in the nursery, in the hospital, or one volunteers at a nursing home with the elderly. Uh, seeing what healthcare looks like beyond the boundaries of a hospital or beyond the boundaries of private practice will give one really good perspective on what does healthcare look like beyond, beyond uh, the, the hospital structure. And as one meets various people, one can see, hopefully make more introductions and get more opportunities to observe. I think that's very important because some people have in their mind what it means to be a physician and when they actually see it or experience it or sit in front of it or observe it, they say, wow, oh, I didn't realize it was this, or, oh, boy, this is, oh, I don't know if I could do this. This seems really stressful. Uh, so that's my, my suggestion, is get as much exposure as you can through volunteer work. Another opportunity is research. A lot of people do research um, as an assistant. Uh, volunteer, sometimes it's paid, sometimes it's not. But it allows one to see what is research like in academic medicine, and to see, you know, which pieces and parts of it do you find yourself attracted to? 
which pieces or parts of it do you find uh, difficult or challenging or unattractive? And that will help you shape your interest and your goals as you move forward. Wow. Thank you so much. That was really great advice in addition to all the other gems that you sprinkled in throughout this podcast. Well, thank you, Vikram. It was, it was a pleasure.